give us so many blessed privileges and for those who want to say thank you we thank you for the privilege of coming to your house to worship you in spirit and in truth the privilege of gathering with brothers and sisters in Christ of like hearts and like minds the privilege of hearing a word from on high the privilege of of speaking with you and God now we pray that you will speak to us through your word open our eyes that we will see wonderful things in your law for it's in Jesus name we pray amen I invite you to turn with me once again to the 10th chapter of Acts and I want to just read um, from verses 9 through 16 which Pastor Harris read so eloquently the next day as they went on their journey and drew near to the city Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour then he became very hungry and wanted to eat but while they made ready he fell into a trance and saw heaven open and an object like a great sheet bound at four corners descended to him and let down to the earth in it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth wild beasts creeping things and birds of the air and a voice came to him rise Peter kill and eat but Peter said not so Lord for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times and the object was taken up into heaven. I want to continue preaching this sermon, series of sermons through the book of Acts entitled um, uh, Peter, a man of passion and purpose. But today I want to use as a sub title expanding the church moving beyond bigotry and racism expanding the church moving beyond bigotry and racism and there are there are 48 uh, verses in this story uh, that that teaches us how God used two men one a soldier uh, and the other one Peter one a soldier by the name of Cornelius uh, to bring about uh, uh, racial reconciliation and to move his church beyond bigotry and racism and to expand the kingdom of God. That's what this is about. That's what th these 48 verses are about. So obviously we won't get through all of them today, but I've divided this sermon into five dramatic scenes, five dramatic scenes, and we'll look at two of those dramatic scenes today and then we'll gather some insights from those scenes that will help us in our quest to expand the kingdom of God and to move beyond bigotry and and racism and the truth of the matter is um, there's, there's a lot of religious bigotry I mean even between denominations you, you have uh, uh, the Lutherans who have take issue uh, with the Presbyterians and Episcopalians taking issue with the Catholics and the Baptists taking issue with Methodists. And, and not only that, when you think about it, there's a lot of bigotry even within denominations. Uh, you know, you got the National Baptists taking issue with the Southern Baptists, and they say, well, no, the Fundamentalist Baptists really have it right. And they say, no, it's really the Independent Baptists that's on the ball. And they say, no, really, it's the Conservative Baptists that really has it going on. They say, no, really, it's the American Baptists. They say, no, it's the Seventh-day Baptists, and it goes on and on and on. And these verses address 
bigotry and racism. And that's what we're going to look at as I make my way through this series in the book of Acts. Dramatic scene one, Cornelius sends out a delegation. Now, dramatic scene one takes us to a place called Caesarea. And it introduces us to a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Roman Italian Regiment. Now, a centurion, a centurion rather, was an officer in the Roman armed forces. History tells us that he commanded about 100 soldiers. So this officer had 100 soldiers under his command. Biblical commentator William Barclay states that the centurions were the backbone of the Roman legion. Now, when I was in the Air Force, I heard this all the time, that, that the, enlisted the enlisted forces are the backbone of the Air Force. We heard that quite a bit. But in this case, they were the backbone of the Roman legion. They were the leaders in closest contact with the men. The centurions were the leaders who had the closest contact with the troops in the field. Therefore, they were the officers upon whom the top brass depended heavily because top brass wanted to, to, to needed officers in the field who worked closely with the men in the field. And so they depended heavily on these on, on these centurions. Cornelius was a well respected Roman soldier. Uh, he was thought highly of by top brass, but not so with the Jewish people. To the Jew, the centurion had three strikes against him. Three strikes against him. First, he was bitterly hated because he was non Jewish. That's the first strike against him. So the Jews couldn't stand Cornelius, and they couldn't stand uh, the, the other centurions because they were not Jewish. They were called Gentiles. Gentiles were any race of people that were non-Jewish. Secondly, he was of the nation that had conquered Palestine, Rome. So they couldn't stand him because he was from the wrong side of the tracks, if you will. He was a part of the Roman uh, uh, line of authority, and that made him hated. Third, he was a member of the armed and occupying force. That is, they couldn't stand him because he represented the oppressive powers, the Roman army that stood God and stood watch over them, that oppressed them, that manipulated them, that oft-time misused and abused them. Nevertheless, Luke writes that Cornelius, get this now, in spite of what they thought about him, Luke writes that he was a devout man. That meant that he was an upright man. He was righteous in his words and in his deeds. And not only that, along with all the members of his household, they feared God. But not only was he an upright man, a righteous man, he gave alms generously to people. That is, he had a compassionate heart. He cared about the poor people. He would be the kind of soldier that would go into the projects and would give gifts and toys 
um, to the children. He would be the kind of soldier that would buy groceries for a single parent. He would be the kind of soldier that saw people down and out and went into his pocket to help them. The Bible says he was fervent. Uh, and he prayed to God always. That meant he had a fervent prayer life. He was always praying to God. And the Bible says about midnight, Cornelius had a vision in which he saw Deacon McKay, an angel of God, who came and spoke to him saying, this angel of God came to Cornelius. And this is what he said in verses 4 through 6. Your prayers and your arms have come up as a memorial before God, send men to Joppa. Joppa was 32 miles south of Caesarea. Send men to Joppa to get Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon Atana, whose house is by the sea. And when he comes back with the men to your house, he will tell you what you must do. When the angel departed, the Bible says, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier. He explained the matter to them. Then he sent them to Joppa in order to fetch Peter and bring him back. In the face of obvious opposition to him and his call, Cornelius stayed focused on the mission for which he had been called. In the face of, of obvious opposition, in the face of the three strikes he had against him, Cornelius stayed focused on the mission for which he had been called. The first insight from scene one is this. We are to remain faithful to our mission in spite of opposition. We are to stay and remain focused and faithful to our mission in spite of the opposition. Because anytime God gives you a mission, there will be opposition. A mission in your home to raise your children in a godly way. You will gain opposition from, 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 from culture, from society, from the entertainment industry, from the athletic industry. You will face opposition. Opposition in your workplace when you stand for God, when you when you live for God, when you do the things that he has called you to do, you will face opposition. And although some people hated Cornelius for who he was and the position he held as a Roman soldier, when God told him what to do, he did it. God told him to send for Peter. And without hesitation, this soldier obeyed the order of God, and he sent for Peter. Here's another insight from the dramatic scene one. When God handpicks you, places you in a position of responsibility, and begins to dictate your direction, don't focus upon people who may or may not like you, or may or may not agree with you, or may or may not even buy into your vision. Don't focus on them. Rather, focus on being faithful to God, even, get this now, another insight, even when it doesn't seem to make sense. Are you with me? 
focus on God even when it doesn't seem to make sense. Like Noah building an ark when it's dry. Focus on God even when it doesn't seem to make sense. Even when you're ridiculed, called foolish, plumb out of your mind. Focus on God when it doesn't make sense. You see, in the text, in the text, here's some things that really didn't make sense. In the text, it made no sense for Cornelius, a Gentile, who was despised by Jewish Jews, to be sending for Peter, who was a Jew. Now, what kind of sense does that make? I mean, they had no dealings with each other. Gentiles and, 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 and Jews didn't mix under normal circumstances. On, it, it made no sense. On the surface, there was no rhyme or reason for them to interact with one another. Peter was Jewish. Cornelius was Gentile. Peter was a civilian. Cornelius was a soldier. What interaction did they have? They were products of different cultures. Products of different cultures, different upbringings, different backgrounds. They, they were products of different social and economic backgrounds. Under normal circumstances, they would have no dealings with one another. But God, get this now, but God, whenever you see the, uh, the conjunct, but God, when you, when you see but God, something big is about to happen. But God means that God is in the mix. But God means that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and his ways are higher than our ways. But God was up to something great. God was up to something great. Unbeknown to Cornelius, God was in the process of expanding his family. Expanded his family, expanding his church. God was in the process of making the gospel of Jesus Christ available to everyone, not just a select group of people, but to everyone. Here's an insight that the gospel is not pigeonholed to one group of people, one denomination of people, one group of people. God was expanding the gospel of Jesus Christ, making it available to everyone. God was standing on the threshold of saving all people who trusted the finished work of Jesus Christ on Calvary and bringing them into his family. Now, that's a, a novice idea because for so long, being included in God's family was exclusively a Jewish issue. And now, here's the other amazing thing. I mean, it's just amazing how God works. The amazing thing is that God was using a Gentile army officer stationed on the Mediterranean coast and a down-home preacher, country preacher for that matter, from Galilee, down-home preacher with no formal rabbinical training to do it. Isn't that amazing? God was about to use 
a Gentile army soldier in Cornelius and a country preacher in Peter who had not been trained under Rabbi Gamal, had not sat in anybody's formal classroom, God was about to use these two to do it. What an insight for living. What an insight for living that God has the audacity and the power to bring about change through the most unlikely people and under the most unusual circumstances. Isn't that insightful? That God has the uh, audacity and the power. That is, he doesn't have to call us a committed meeting. He doesn't have to get folk to agree on it and to, to vote on it. God says, this is what I'm going to do. This is how it's going to be. Make it happen. He went to two men in spite of themselves who were willing to make it happen. Here's an insight for you. God in the 21st century church is looking for people to make it happen. Make his will happen. Make his word happen. To be a part of the process that brings his will into fruition. What an insight for living. God has the audacity and the power to bring about change through the most unlikely people and under the most unusual circumstances. Dramatic scene one teaches us to go with God. Cornelius, going with God. Peter, go with God. It teaches us to go with God, to stay with God. There are pressures that will to, to beat against you and storms that will beat against you to to try to drive you away from God. Things will come up that will try to drive a wedge in between you and God. But this scene teaches us, go with God and stay with God. Trust in God. Submit to God. Surrender to God. Even when doing so doesn't make sense. You see, sometimes when God does a thing, it's very unconventional, a very non-conventional. God has a way of, 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 of coloring outside of, of the, the lines of the human psyche, not outside the lines of his word, the biblical text, but outside the lines of how people think. God has a way of working outside of the box, sometimes even in the church, we want to keep God in our nice little Baptist box, our nice little Pentecostal box, our nice little Presbyterian box. And God always breaks out and says by his actions, I refuse to be placed in anybody's box. I am God. I'm God. What God does may not fit. The mindset of the masses. But if God gives the order, go with it. Isn't that an insight? Didn't Cornelius do that? God gave the order and Cornelius went with it. When God gives the order, substantiated by his word, it doesn't matter what anybody thinks. It doesn't matter how people feel. It doesn't even make a difference how people vote. 
when God gives the order, go with God even if you feel like you're going alone. Dramatic scene two, Peter's vision. Scene two develops while the men were traveling towards Joppa. Peter went up on the housetop to pray. And while praying, he became very hungry and he fell into a trance and he saw heaven open and an object like a huge sheet bound at the four corners descending down towards him. Imagine that, if you will. Imagine a, a gigantic movie screen coming down. I mean, you've been out here to, to, to car theater, some of you, and you've been to movies. And, and, and you know, of course, in the old days, the, the screen had to come down. But imagine the screen is coming down from heaven like a huge sheet. And, and in this sheet, uh, on this screen, were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth. There were wild beasts. There were creeping things and the birds of the air. And, and while Cornelius was watching this scene, I'm sorry, while Peter was watching this scene, a voice came to him saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, remember, verse 10 tells us Peter was very hungry, but he wasn't that hungry. Because in spite of his hunger, he rejects the admonition of the voice stating in verse 14, not so, Lord, exclamation point. The exclamation point means that this was an emphatic no. This was a passionate no. This was a firm no. Verse 14 states, not so, Lord, exclamation point, for I have never eaten anything uncommon or unclean. Now, in order for us to understand Peter's stern rebuttal uh, to this voice, his, his adamant refusal uh, to be obedient to this voice, it's helpful to know that Peter held firm to the Jewish dietary laws. All of his life, even from childhood, he held firm to the Jewish dietary laws found specifically in Leviticus chapter 11. You can read those at, at, a, at, at another time, leisure time. But, but basically, Leviticus 11 is clear concerning food permitted and forbidden for God's people to eat. And Peter prided himself in following this law. In fact, eating unclean food was one of the major reasons Jews considered the Gentiles unclean and unacceptable to God. Therefore, because they ate unclean food and therefore because the Gentiles were unclean and unacceptable to God, naturally they were unclean and unacceptable to the Jews. Do you see the conflict? It was the major reason that the Jews refused to have anything to do with the Gentiles. One of the reasons that they refused to have anything to do with the Gentiles, and they looked upon the Gentiles with disdain. They would be like they would be sitting in a restaurant, 
if they were even in the same building. And the, and, 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 and the Gentiles would be over there enjoying a plate of, of barbecue. And the Jews would be on the other side turning up their nose and talking about how despicable and how disgusting it is for them to be eating like that. So here we see Peter, who had never in his life eaten a pork chop. He had never in his life tasted a ham sandwich. He had never consumed a plate of greasy bacon. He had never tasted Hoghead cheese, never swallowed a mouthful of chitlins and rice, and never treated himself to a piece of fat, fat bacon or down a plate full of pig feet. No way. These scrumptious, tasty delights were off limits to Peter. But not only were they off limits to Peter, they were downright disgusting and downright despicable. And for him to indulge himself would have been a culinary nightmare, causing him to lose his distinctive place as one of God's chosen people. And so in verse 14, Peter responds to the offer by saying, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Not so I have never eaten anything common or unclean. In other words, the undertone of Peter's statement is this. I am not eating that junk. I'm not eating that garbage. I'm not putting my lips on that unclean pagan fare. I refuse to defile my holiness and identify in any way, form, or fashion with the unclean, unworthy, tasteless, useless, and good-for-nothing Gentiles who eat that kind of food. Now, here's an insight. Peter must have felt real good about himself. Perhaps he straightened up his halo a bit, and expected a pat on the back from God for passing the holier-than-thou test. I mean, this has to be a test. And so, and so obviously he's expecting God to pat him on the back and say, Well done, Peter. You have done well. This was a test. You have passed. Perhaps Peter... Thanks now, feeling good about himself, that he has something now to boast about. When he and his friends were swapping tales about their spiritual elitism. You know how we do sometimes when we tell folks off religiously. When they're way out in left field, uh, you know, we tell it so that when we get a chance to tell our friends what we told them, it will really sound good. And they would say, man, you really told them. Did you really tell them that? 
Yeah, I told, and this is what I told them. And I told them if you didn't do it this way, you were out of line. And I told them if you didn't come to our church, you were out of line. And I told them if you weren't in our camp, you were out of line. And I told them if you didn't do it exactly like we did it, you were out of line. I told them if you didn't dress like we dressed, they, they were out of line. And I told them, and I told them, and I told them. And, and Peter, like we sometimes feel pretty good about ourselves as we build up our arsenal to boast about and brag about about how we told folk they were really off the mark. So what he heard next must have shocked his sandals off. Note in the word in the verse 15, what God has cleaned, you must not call In other words, Peter, do not call anything God has made unclean. That's not your place. That's not your call. That's not your determination. You are not the judge in this matter. Instead of getting a pack on the back, Peter got the shock of his life, which was a turning point for him. In fact, the words of verse 15 shocked Peter to the point that he didn't, he didn't get it. It, it, didn't, it didn't register. It didn't re- resonate. I mean, he was stunned. He was shocked. Uh, verse 15 explains the shock that Peter uh, experienced when it says that this was done three times. Now, that could literally mean three times, or it could mean he just did it over and over and over again. He did it three times. That meant Peter was drilled over and over and over again. Doesn't God work with us like that sometimes? Again, I say, you didn't get it. Again, I say, let's do it again. Let's look at it again, over and over and over again, until finally the light comes on. So it was three times. The text says, Peter was drilled. You know, verse 15 points out, that Peter had some issues going on. Peter had some deep-seated religious bigotry going on. Can I get a little deep in the text today? He had some deep-seated religious bigotry going on. Peter had some prejudice permeating his being. Now, now remember, they're not too far away from from Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. But Peter, to be, to be sure, Peter was saved, but he still had some sin. Peter was born again, but he still carried some baggage. Peter was sanctified, set apart for God's service, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit, but he was still a work in progress. That's it. That's an insight from this text that we are all works in progress. That's an insight how all of us are works in progress. Like Peter, on our best day, on our best day, God is shaping us. On our best day, God 
is shaping up. We are clay in the potter's hands on our best day. On our best day, when we all dressed up, when, when we have everything externally in the right place, when we are saying the right things, on our best day, God is still molding us. God is still making us in his image and in his likeness on our very best day. While I preach, God is still making me. I have not arrived. You have not arrived. That's an insight from this text. That as great as Peter was, he was a work in progress. Yeah. Scene two reminds us not to get too comfortable with where we are. Not to flaunt our spirituality as trophies of our righteousness. That's what Peter was doing when he said, no, Lord, I won't eat that. I've never eaten that. He was flaunting. He was boasting. He was bragging his spirituality as a trophy of his righteousness. Scene 2 reminds us not to flaunt our spirituality as trophies of our righteousness, not to bathe ourselves in the deceptive waters of spiritual elitism. Not to bathe ourselves in the deceptive, you know, those deceptive waters that make us think that we are so much more spiritual than everybody else. This scene reminds us not to go there, not to bathe ourselves in the deceptive waters of spiritual elitism, but rather to stand open to God and cry out in the words of David in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, Search me, O God. And know my heart. Try me. And know my anxieties. And see if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Ah. What an insight. In the second dramatic scene. God held a mirror. To Peter's faith so that he could see himself. You see, what God showed Peter was not about animals at all. It was not about four, uh, four, feet, uh, four uh, uh, creeping things and, 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 and flying things. It was not about reptiles. It was not about animals. It was about people. That's the insight of the text. It was about people. It was about Gentiles and Peter's attitude towards them. God dropped the screen from heaven and showed Peter a movie that blew him away. The movie featured Peter himself and the Jewish people, and how they must change in order to expand the kingdom of God, to include Gentiles in the family of God. That must have been some kind of movie. And you know, God is still showing that movie in the church today. He's showing us that movie, how we must expand the kingdom. How we must break out of certain traditions that hold us back.
bound and how we must cross cultural boundaries and racial boundaries and, and how through the Holy Spirit God must change our thinking, change our attitude and grow the kingdom. God was showing Peter that he was going to be a part of the kingdom expansion to include Gentiles into the family of God. And God was showing Peter that Peter was going to be a prime mover, a messenger, a mouthpiece, a catalyst, a conduit to help get that message across. That's the message. That's the insight. It's a message that says to us that God wants to use us to expand his kingdom. How are we going to do it? We're going to tell people that Jesus suffered and bled and died for everyone. We're going to tell them that he was buried for everyone. We're going to tell them that he shed his blood for everyone. We're going to tell them that early on the third day Sunday morning, he got up with all power in his hand, not just for black people, not just for white people, not just for red people, not just for yellow people, not just for poor people, not just for rich people, not just for Democrats, not just for Republicans, not just for men, not just for women, but for everybody. He got it.